I'm starting to do more live events as I find the electricity of a live audience while electrifying. And this one is set at the beautiful Toronto Hunt Golf Club, an oasis that sits on the bluffs over Lake Ontario. And my guest tonight, acclaimed journalist, documentarian, and author Steve Bacon. And the word that came to me as I was preparing this interview was meaning. Humans can live for weeks without food, days without water, but when it comes to meaning, we search for it constantly day and night. It's our GPS that helps us to validate who we are, where we are, where we've traveled, and where we're heading. Some find meaning within, others through spiritual counsel, philosophers, psychology, mentors, self-help books, friends, and family members. And today I would argue many find their meaning through social media. But one place I've always sought better understanding of the world and my place within it is through incredible journalism. The people whose craft is to curate information, synthesize it, and at times even sanitize it, and then present it with their point of view. As a kid, I remember watching Neil Armstrong take his first step on the moon. Megan Toohey, the Pulitzer Prize journalist of the New York Times. When I interviewed her, she talked about why she felt it was so important to bring awareness and to demonize the demons of Harvey Weinstein. And tonight, my guest is someone I hold in the highest of regard, a character with great character, a journalist with an insatiable appetite for the truth, yet one who interviews with empathy and generosity versus this intellectual dance we often see where two people in the room try to show who's the smartest. I have to say, you don't pull any punches, never mind I'm talking about other people, but in particular, when you talk about yourself, you are very tough on yourself in this book. You, you have an ability to go from funny, funny, ha-ha, we're laughing, we're laughing, and then boom, you hit us with tragedy. Why do you do that? You're a big, tough, gruff Irishman, and they weren't. Do you think that cultural clash explained part of your firing? The question of how to be a man in the 21st century remains. What is masculinity today? Let's ask. You're in for a great show, lots of insight and laughter. Let's now go live to the Toronto Hunt Club and give Steve Pakin the applause he deserves. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. A wonderful round of applause to Steve Bacon. Now, Steve, we got a lot to unpack tonight, and we're going to finish talking about this extraordinary new book that we were just talking about with John Turner. But I want to, I, I often go back to the roots before you got to be who you are. And from what I understand, obviously born in Hamilton, your parents weren't really what I would call normal. I mean, your mother's uh, <laughs> Order of Canada recipient. Your dad was a very successful entrepreneur. Tell me what a dinner conversation was like with that kind of caliber of people. We talked a lot about the Leafs. <laughs> so it was a sad conversation. <laughs> no, I, you, you interrupted me before I could say, and this would have been in the 60s when it was a very happy conversation. They won four Stanley Cups in the 60s. I think, you know what, I, the thing I've always admired my parents for the most, besides being fabulous parents, is that I felt we had a blessedly normal childhood. My brother and me, there's two of us. And, that, and that's it. Like, the, we just... We played road hockey after school every day. We played street football. We went to a lot of Leaf games. We went to a lot of Ticat games. We spent a lot of time together as a family. It just all seemed very blessedly normal, and I was grateful for that. So in a world today where screens seem to be blocking that kind of conversation, 
What advice can you give to people to, to have that sense of normality that years later the children will talk with such pride as you talk about with your parents? I would uh, urge them to do what so many people have uh, said to me, and that is uh, put the screens away, particularly at the dining room table. No devices allowed over dinner. Uh, everybody needs to come together for one meal a day, presumably dinner. And, um, and that's how you get to stay in touch. As I was doing a little digging on this for this interview, I also read that one of the things that you talk about the most fondly with your mom was when she would read you the sports page in <laughs> yes. the morning. How old were you when that was happening? Oh, a little kid. You know, that, that was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. We would often, as we, my, my parents liked to take us to the Leaf games because I later learned the excuse was, we never wanted to worry about where our kids were on a Saturday night. So we would drive in from Hamilton, and as a, as a foursome, mom, dad, my brother, and me, we would go to the games together. Of course, there's no Globe and Mail on Sunday, so Monday morning, my mom over breakfast would read us the Globe and Mail newspaper account of the Leaf game that we'd gone to Saturday night. And I think Dick Beddoes, which is a name that may mean something to people in this room, we used to, she used to love to read Dick Beddoes' column to us a lot, and, and, and I have no doubt that that was one of a number of factors that planted a seed in me which made me interested in journalism and sports, and there we go. So I'm curious about that because, you know, the, the street hockey kid, you're still playing hockey. You're, when you went to school, you were the play-by-play -play commentator. You know, you wrote sports stories. So sports was in your veins. Did you ever say, I'd rather be the journalist than the, you know, I imagine you're, you know, Mahovlich or something playing street hockey, scoring the goal of Stanley Cup overtime. Did you ever, when did that start emerging in your mind that journalism might be the place that you practice your craft? My first week at University of Toronto. I was 18 years old. I walked into Hart House, which I guess people here know, you know, this old Gothic building on the downtown campus. And I, th this is before I even took one class. I walked in and it was clubs night. And you know, there's the photography club and there's the archery club and the chess club and so on and so forth. And there was a table there that said U of T radio. And Tony, I don't know what happened, but it was a eureka moment. It's like a light went on and I said, oh, wait. I walked over to the guy and I said, can I do the play-by-play -play of the Varsity Blues hockey and football teams? And he said, sure. <laughs> and I said, you mean I could be the Foster Hewitt of the University of Toronto? And he said, sure. I said, you know, I've never done this before. He said, it's okay. And that was it. And, and my uh, color commentator for those games was a guy named Michael Landsberg who, right, you all know him, right? TSN, off the record for so many years. And we did the games together for a few years, and it was, I mean, we were horrible, but we had so much fun. And what gave you the courage to do that? Because that's, that's not a one rung up. That's going, okay, yeah, go ahead and do it. Then you gotta go back and go, what did I just sign up for? I mean. I don't think it took courage. I think it just required a certain amount of um, stupidity to think that they would <laughs> A actually, lot of beer. Well, there was no beer involved, no. It, it just, uh, you know, the notion that they would take this request seriously, I found uh, amusing. So what the heck, we were off. So Bachelor of Arts at the University of Toronto, yeah. then you parlay that into a master's degree in journalism at Boston University. Yeah. So you're obviously very passionate about journalism at this point. What did you think you would do when you graduated? Because, I mean, sports continue to be percolating in that knapsack. What, what got you moving from sports into politics. Did that happen at university or was afterwards? No, that happened as a summer fill-in reporter at my hometown newspaper, The Hamilton Spectator. And the editor's name was Rob Austin. And I said to Rob, I, I, like, I love sports. Just send me out to cover the Ticats, 
the Hamilton Cardinals intercounty baseball team. That's all I want to cover. And he said, oh, interesting. Okay, you cover no sports at all. You get to do no sports at all. You are far too young. I think it was 19 at the time. He said, you're far too young to specialize in sports. There's a big other world out there. So I'm only sending you to cover school board meetings, city council meetings, <laughs> fires, murders, everything else, but no sports. And I remember being so disappointed and angry with him at the time. And he made the decision that in fact, help get me on the road to, I guess, where I am today. So you graduate, and where's your first big step in a journalism? My first full-time job was as a city hall reporter in 1982, Toronto City Hall. I remember that election very well because everybody was talking about this new downtown Toronto City councillor, Jack Layton. Yeah, it was Jack Layton's first election. And he was, he was a new downtown, I forget, Ward 5, Ward 6, I can't remember now. But you could tell he stood out above all of the other councillors in a way that you knew he was going places. Is that in your rearview mirror now because you've had so much experience? No. Or did you have that instinct early on that said, this person has the it factor? No instinct on my part. Everybody knew it. He had an amazing way of getting attention for the issues he cared about. Remember, the, the mayor of the day was Art Eggleton. Uh, mayor, mayor Eggleton was not what you would call necessarily a flamboyant, dynamic guy, but he's good, steady, and people respected and trusted him. You know, compared to him, Jack Layton was just a real barn burner. So he got a lot of attention. And how would you have the courage at that young age? Oh, you keep saying courage. What courage? I, well, I'm, courage I'm 22. I'm stupid. I don't know what I'm doing. How can you be so stupid at age 22, then? I feel, that felt really good. <laughs> That felt really good. Uh, so, so your stupidity is fully in check at 22. And do you ever feel like you're an imposter at that age? Because you're you're writing in points of view that people are going to be reading, some of them that are, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years older than you. Okay, here's the dirty little secret. I'm 62 today. Who in this room does not suffer from an imposter syndrome, regardless of how old you are? I mean, we all have these moments where we wonder, what's going on? So at 22, you're too stupid to be, to worry about imposter syndrome. You're just, you know, taking as big a bite out of the apple as you can. And then, you know, as you go along, you just kind of hope nobody catches on to the fact that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> this is going to be a hard night for me. <laughs> you're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Steve Bacon is my guest today. He's an acclaimed journalist who believes great content is about we versus me. When did you start, because a lot of my listeners are young and they're struggling to find their path in life and the world's got a lot of uncertainty in it. When did you know that you arrived and that you actually belonged and that you had a point of view that, that mattered, that was worth listening to? I don't think that way. I don't, I've never in my life sat, you know, behind my desk at the computer or whatever and thought, wow, I've finally arrived. I just don't think that way. Hey, you know, th there's a show to get on the air every night. There's a column to write every week. There's a newsletter to write every week. There's a podcast to record every week. There are books to write along the way, family members to stay in touch with. I just never have had the experience where I sat there and thought to myself, well, I've finally really arrived now, because I don't know, I just- Does it, Do you think that's what's kept your longevity of your career, that you've never taken it for granted, that it's just- Well, that's for sure. I certainly have never taken anything for granted. By the time you get to my age, most people are out of this business already. That's just a fact. 
So I'm incredibly grateful that I work at a place that likes the work that I do, that there seems to be an audience for the kind of work that I do, and that they, you know, I put my uh, ID badge on the door opener every day, and so far it's still working. So that's a good thing. After tonight, it might not be. <laughs> so fill in the gaps, but before you go to TVO, because I want to talk to you about, I would say, the little fish in the big pond or the big fish in the little pond, but you had a, quite an interesting career prior to going to TVO. So just give us sort of the highlight reel. I don't know it was all that interesting. It was fairly typical. I tried to... You know, you're becoming very Canadian to me, this modest. <laughs> For God's sakes, you've got an order of Canada on your lapel. Show some arrogance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm in trouble tonight. I knew it. I knew it. Well, okay. So uh, I graduated from Boston University. Uh, got my first job at CHFI and CFTR, what they call 680 News now, I think, or maybe it's something else. Anyway, so I covered City Hall and Queen's Park for three years. Then 1985, I went to CBC, local television news on a short-term, I think four or five-month contract. Turns out I like them and they like me, so that turned into a year-long contract and just covered everything there. You get to really know your city there and province. Covered a lot of stuff and then went to TVO in 1992 and I've been there for 31 years. That must have been a big decision because you had a lot of momentum and trajectory. Who did you discuss the decision with? When you make a decision like that, is that, is that when your parents get involved or was that just something that you decided on your own? I think I made that decision on my own because I was hosting the six o'clock news on CBLT, as we called it then, Channel 5, Cable 6, the CBC Low. But you know, when you work for CBC, Tony, they send you to do everything. I used to fill in for Knowlton Nash and Peter Mansbridge on The National doing that. I'd fill in for Beth Harrington doing entertainment. I'd fill in for Ken Daniels doing sports. I'd fill in for Joe Cote doing Metro Morning. I'd fill in for Ralph Ben Murgy doing Midday. They, they send you all over the place. So a lot of really great experiences that, that gave me a feel for all the different kinds of things you could do in journalism. Fraser Kelly is a name that will mean something to the people in this room. Okay. Fraser Kelly was the anchor of the six o'clock news at CBC with Hillary Brown, who was here before. Hillary left and Fraser left and I took over from them. I was one of a few people who took over from them. And I thought that was the job I wanted because Fraser was my idol. He was a big mentor to me. And then I realized once I got it, it actually wasn't what I wanted to do. The anchor of the news back then kind of just read the introduction to everybody else's work. And I actually wanted to do something a little more Fulfilling, that's the word. Thank you. And is that you, Lynn? That's me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and if I don't name her in my radio show, I will be in trouble, so well. So that's when Peter Herndorf came calling at TVO and said, we think we're starting something here that you might like better. Let's talk. So we're gonna go into TVO for a second, but I think there's an incredible lesson that I'm not sure everybody goes after anymore, which is diversification. Yeah. Find, find a lot of different jobs, a lot of different tasks, never say no, because I think a lot of times now we seem to want to have people find their lane in university and find their lane in business. But I think one of the strengths that you had was that having a first in Hamilton saying you're going to do all these other things and then at CBC that said, look, we're going to throw in all these different battles. The very last conversation I had with the dean of the journalism school at Boston University was, when I apply for jobs, what do I tell them I can do? And he said, you tell them you can do everything. Because you can. You've been trained here for the past year to be able to do everything. And the courses that I took 
Really, I took a course in magazine writing, in enterprise reporting, in television, in executive producing, in news directing, in anchoring, in, I mean, everything. They taught you everything. And that turned out to be really great advice. And as you point out, when I got to CBC, well, I don't know, can he host the morning show? Oh yeah, I can do that, you know? Can he fill in for this? Yeah, I can do that too. Do you think we need to bring more liberal arts into our schools to get people to think about philosophy and psychology as opposed to being, I'm gonna just sprint to get my business degree or my computer science degree? I mean, that's the way I went, so I have a bias towards that for sure. I got the most bottom of the barrel degree you could get in Ontario at that time. I got a three-year general arts BA. Like didn't specialize in anything and took just a wide smattering of different courses, everything from philosophy to politics to film studies and loved it all. And I never worried, and I keep telling young people this these days, especially our daughter, my wife's here tonight. I have this conversation with my daughter who's in second year at university right now and is already worried about the fact that she doesn't know what she wants to do with the next 50 years of her life. Don't worry about that. Learn how to think. Learn how to write. Learn some stuff. And the doors will open. So TVO, we're going to fast forward a little bit, but you know, they give you the game ball. You, you have your own show, your name on the door. I, I do not have my own show. The agenda with Steve Pakin, I don't remember, and others. <laughs> Without the others, there's no show. Yes, we're going to get into the making of the show and stuff, but your name's on it. Does that change who you are because now- No, the answer is no. How's that possible? How is it impossible? <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy. I'm a much weaker man than you. I would, be, I would be freaked out about every story. I go, my name's on this show, make it perfect. So how do you lift a team to put a, the kind of quality product that you have? Here's all I'm gonna give you on this, okay? You're trying to draw me out here, but I used to do shows at TVO. I did a bunch of different shows before this one. Did one called Fourth Reading, which was about Queens Park. Right, every bill that becomes law gets first, second, and third reading, we were fourth reading. And may I say, while I'm on the subject, the longest serving speaker in Ontario history is here with us tonight, Dave Levac's right there. Here, here, yeah, how, about a, how about a hand for Dave Levac? You now see how Steve's trying to take over my show. We're not gonna, we are not gonna let this happen on our watch. But no, the point is, so there was a show called Fourth Reading, there was a show called Between the Lines, there was another show about foreign affairs called Diplomatic Immunity, there was another show called Studio Two. They were all canceled. And they, they said, okay, we're gonna create a new show, no co-hosts, just you, we're gonna put your name on the show. Now I'll grant you, that was a bit of a moment. But it was a moment, and nothing more than a moment, because I quickly understood it's not my show and I don't have a show. If anything, the show has me because I can't do anything without a whole other team of people working with me to get it done. Otherwise, there's that Doug Ford expression, get it done. Otherwise, there's nothing. So how do you lift a team? And I'm not saying, okay, you're assuming a position of, of influence versus authority. I respect mm -hmm. you for that. But how does the team rise to the occasion? Like, so give us some advice because we're becoming a very collaborative culture. We're flattening our hierarchy and everybody's kind of going, who's got influence, who's got authority? What advice can you give to my listeners about how do you get everybody to kind of what they call lift the boat? I hope what you do is set a tone. The previous show that I did called Studio Two, by the time we got to the end, it was not as much fun as it was at the beginning. We had a few issues that made people unhappy. Suffice to say, there was a bit of a steady stream of producers coming, knocking on my door, coming in, closing the door, 
and unburdening themselves, sometimes with tears, oftentimes with unpleasant stories. It was very concerning. And so when the agenda was created, the executive producer was a great friend of mine, still is a great friend of mine, and we said job one was going to be to create an atmosphere where people could do their best work. And so whenever we had disagreements, and we had them often, he used to have this expression, we never fight in front of the kids. And we never did, okay? We just, we had our discussions behind closed doors, but we set a tone of, of unity and leadership and that kind of thing. And one day, I remember we came out of his office after a little chat about something, all the producers of the show sitting there talking about their shows, the stuff that they were working on. And we looked at each other and we just said, mission accomplished. The tone had been set. They enjoyed each other's company. There wasn't this sort of too much culture of fear in the place. I still think that's what you do. You don't yell at people when things go bad because things go bad every day. You're creating this culture of, you know, the, the buzzword in business is culture of excellence. But as you get known and you get the respect that you're, you're earning with the show, how do you keep egos out of the way and that sort of natural competitiveness thing? I want to be Steve's person. That's not my experience there. It's a pretty great bunch. It's a pretty, and the funny thing is, like I remember when I was the youngest guy working in wherever it was that I worked. And now, I mean, I'm working with people and taking orders from people who are old enough to be my children. And it's a, it's a bit of an odd thing, but it's great. And I see my job is to, you know, bring them along and, and try and share whatever knowledge I have and learn from them because they've got knowledge about stuff going on in society today that I have no clue about because I'm 62. I have to believe that you taking the time to listen with generosity and sincerity has to be something very magical for those young people because they go from being intimidated to feeling like they're part of the team. So good for you. Hope so. Coming up, I asked Steve Pakin, who was his favorite guest? And then what interview got away from him? Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live, and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. Hi everybody, I'm Steve Pakin. There's a new book out. And joining us now here in our studio to tell us more about this book is the author, Steve Pakin, who's the host of The Agenda with Steve Pakin. How does it feel to finally add the title author to your list of credits? Uh, well, this is actually my fifth book, so I guess technically I'm already a published author, but it really was a labor of love. You're old, aren't you? How old are you? Um, seriously? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, Presented by RBC. My guest today is Steve Bacon, claimed journalist, documentarian, and author. So I want to talk about this sort of a rapid fire part of the show. Who's your favorite? Probably been asked this a million times. This question you hate the most, but again, I'm in control. So who's your favorite? Who's your favorite guest of all time? This is going to be a strange answer because the guest couldn't speak English. So we had to go through a translator. So in some respects, it was difficult to establish a rapport with this person because he didn't speak any English. But on the other hand, I sat two feet away. I sat as close as you and I are right now from Mikhail Gorbachev. Oh, yeah. And there's a guy, right. 
That's a guy who changed the world. You have an eerie feeling when you're sitting that close to somebody who changed the course of world history. And who's the one where you lost it? Like you, because you were, you, you know. That one's easy, actually. Okay. <laughs> That one's easy. I'm still, uh, and this is not, a, uh, without a word of exaggeration, uh, Mordecai Richler. And Mordecai, Mordecai Richler, you know, author from Quebec, he's notoriously difficult to interview. Uh, if he's not in the mood to play along with you, you're just not going to go very far. So I made it a point to go into the green room ahead of time and really schmooze him up. And what's a nice thing you can do to ingratiate yourself with someone? Say something nice about their kids. And in this case, it was true. Daniel Richler had hosted a show at TVO called Imprint, which was about books. And he was a friend of mine, and I called him up as TVO was courting me. And I said, what do you think? Is it a good place to work? And you know, we had a great chat about it, and he said it was, and so it was very influential, actually, in my ultimate decision to go to TVO. And I told all this to Mordecai, thinking, he's gonna love me now, because I'm saying such nice things about his kid. <laughs> we get out on the set, and I'm getting two-word answers to every question. He just does not want to be there. This was for a show called Studio Two, so it's about 20 years ago, maybe more, 25 years ago. And the format of the show was you do the interview, we say thank you, interview's over, director cuts to a wide shot, we sit there, lip flap, mics are cut, but we sit there lip flapping for five seconds, fade to black. He so hated his experience of that interview that when the director cut to the wide shot, he ripped his mic off and walked off. He couldn't wait the five seconds to fade to black before leaving. And of course, he sparked up a cigarette in the middle of it in a no-smoking building, but, you know, so, and as you can tell, I'm not over it yet. <laughs> Jeez, I, should, I shouldn't have brought that scar out midway through the interview. Wow. And it, do you ever interview someone that you go, this is among the shallowest, ridiculous celebrity I've ever met, and I have to make this good? No, Tony, never. <laughs> so, we don't want, is there a first name that we could drop or? <laughs> no, no, Tony, Tony never. <laughs> okay, I wanna, I wanna move on to the state of media today. And this is something that I've been writing a lot and talking about often. I think we're in a bit of a crisis point because investigative journalism to me is what has put important people's feet to the fire. Accountability, responsibility, transparency. And it might just be me because I'm getting older and more cynical, but it seems like investigative journalism is disappearing. I don't know if it's for the economy because it's advertisers are leaving the news. I don't know if it is because the, the reader and listener just doesn't have the patience for it anymore. But is that a fair statement as you, from your point of view that snackable content and TikTok and fake news and little sound bites and bits and bites is replacing what really helped define democracy and keep it on the right track? Not replacing but certainly competing with as never before. We have a business model right now for media in this, well, all over the world, frankly, that doesn't work anymore. Good investigative reporting and journalism starts with newspapers. That's just my view. And the problem is that the advertisers have left newspapers as never before, and they've moved over to online services, Facebook, TikTok, all this other stuff you talked about. And that means that newspapers which used to depend on advertising for 90% of their budget and the dollar and a quarter that you pay to get the Globe and Mail only actually contributes to 10% of the budget. The problem is that that 90% is shrinking every year and there's nothing at the moment replacing it. And the problem is if we don't have newspapers from which, frankly, radio and television news 
steal a lot of their story ideas, which end up on the news that night, but it starts with newspapering, we're in trouble. And I don't know what we do about this. Some of you here may have seen a show called The Wire, which was on HBO many years ago. And the guy who wrote The Wire, he actually started as a reporter with the Baltimore Sun. And then he left journalism, but with the knowledge that he gained covering all those scandals, he ended up creating this show. And he testified before Congress once, they were doing something on the future of journalism. And he said, I predict we are about to enter the golden age of municipal corruption because there's nobody left in the city hall bureaus to mind the store anymore. And all of these formerly, you have to look at any newspaper in the country, and they're all, I mean, too many of them are closing down, but you look at all the newspapers, if there were a six-person bureau once upon a time, it's a one-person bureau today. At Queen's Park, when I was covering the Davis government in the early 1980s, you know, I don't know how many people were in the gallery, but I'm, I'm willing to bet it was close to something like 80 or 90. And today, you know, it might be a couple of dozen. And there aren't fewer stories to cover now. If anything, there's more to cover now. And with access to information laws, we have access to more information. So what's the answer? Part of it is currently the cynicism is if one party decides to fund the media and the other party wants to defund it, which is really this great divide we're facing in this country, is the answer maybe that it shouldn't be a political move, but it should be a citizens that say this is important and therefore we need to fund it? I think the answer is we're going to have to take a whole lot of jello and throw it at the wall and see what sticks. I think there's a possibility, you know, I, I got to admit, I'm not much of a fan of this $600 million package the federal government put together. I think it's problematic to give private for profit companies tax dollars to theoretically hire reporters to do work when there are executives in those companies making seven-figure salaries. There are a lot of rich people in the United States, uh, Eli Broad, Jeff Bezos, who have decided that a vigorous fourth estate is important to the survival of democracy. I mean, I don't want to sound arrogant here, but the fact is that, there, that nowhere in the Constitution of either the United States or Canada is there uh, a guarantee for the freedom to make cars, but there is a guarantee for freedom of the press. Therefore, that's a business, that's an institution that the framers of constitutions on both sides of the border have decided is integral to democracy. And if we don't figure out how to keep it alive, either through charitable tax status or, I don't know what, I don't know what, if we can't figure it out, uh, I think we're doomed. So you didn't mention Elon Musk in that list of, of tycoons that have decided that they're going to invest, invest their billions in media. Bezos, I could argue, Washington Post gives them a lot of political influence in Washington, which is where antitrust laws get formed. And Amazon would certainly be in that radar screen if you looked at the principles of antitrust. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk with Twitter, which is, you know, seemed to be almost a pinball game. You don't know where he's going with it. Is the answer that the people that have created these immense fortunes are the ones they're going to sustain? Because I, I have to believe that their conflict of interest is as great as one party funding media. And if anybody's looking out there for the silver bullet that's, that's uh, you know, a pristine, pure so solution, you're not going to find it. Look at every single publisher of a newspaper in the world is looking for the solution. Can we give our product away for free online and have it be advertiser supported? Doesn't seem like that's a way that many can go. Can we charge subscription fees for online product only? Well, maybe if you're the New York Times, you can get away with that, or the Wall Street Journal. If you have a singularly unique international brand, maybe you can do it. 
Can the Hamilton Spectator do that? They're trying. I don't know if they can do it, but we'll see. How important is the reader in this, the viewer in it, the younger generation coming in? We're already drinking content from a fire hose. This year it's going to go to a waterfall because AI is now creating content. And they're going, they're very happy to kind of based on their preferences, they happen to like cats and skateboarding and, and whatever. That's the news they want. So how do we educate the next generation to come up and say, Diving deep into a subject matters. Yep, and it's got to start with parents and it's got to start in elementary school. We got to start teaching media literacy right now. Actually, we needed to start teaching it 10 years ago. But let's start now in a major way. I think my kids are pretty, um, pretty up on issues and I don't think they've ever picked up an actual hard newspaper in the last 10 years. But they get all their news on, you know, they, from this thing, right? They get all their news from there and they do read the news and they do stay in touch with issues but they do it all on their phones or on their laptops. And we have to understand that's where the readers of the future, the viewers of the future are going to be. Uh, TVO got this, I should say, I think before probably any television station in Canada. We had some young people who said, you know, it's not enough to be on television only. We're going to have to put our programs online as well where people can watch them. And I'm sure the agenda was the first current affairs television program in Canadian history to be live streamed on Twitter and Facebook and on our webpage every night because kids don't watch television. They don't know what television is. But well, you know, you talk about an old, here. old dog learning new tricks. You also became the most respected journalist in Canada on Twitter. Yeah, what's that saying? Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not saying you're, I'm not saying that's a high bar. No kidding. But, uh, <laughs> You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Steve Pakin has written eight books, mostly on politics, and three with prime ministers whose stories deserve to be told, or they will soon be forgotten. So I want to talk a little bit about journalism now, because when I interviewed Kevin Newman, and he opened my mind to the fact that journalism is a tough sport. I mean, we kind of think of well, how great your life is, but how do you come to terms with having to see some of the most horrific content, find a way to synthesize it, curate it, sensitize it for the viewer, and present it in a positive emotional state or in a sad emotional state or any emotional state, knowing that you're just scratching the surface because the viewer can't take what you've seen. How do you do that job, go home at night, and just become a normal human being? Well, I'm going to give you another very unsatisfactory answer, which is I don't really spend any time thinking about that. I go to work. I do my job. I'll, you know, I'll give you this. What often stays with me, back in the old days, if somebody were watching a television program with, with his wife or she with her husband or whatever, and they saw something they didn't like, they'd make a comment to each other and it might be profanity laced, it might be laced with racism, but they'd be the only two who knew about it. Nowadays, when people see something they don't like, they are all over social media, oftentimes using a pseudonym, so we don't even know who they are, and they are not holding back. I think one of the skills that I've had to learn on this job is to be able to distinguish when reading comments on Twitter and Facebook and so on, between what is genuinely useful, constructive criticism to me that will help me do my job better because I am still trying to get better at what I do and I'm happy to take constructive criticism from viewers. Distinguish that from the stuff that will curl your toes. So gross and so hurtful and so makes you question <laughs> the human condition. That's the, I mean, you don't wanna read my emails you don't want to read the stuff that people say to me on Twitter. You don't want to pick up my voicemail messages. Why is humanity 
dissolving to this divide and conquer where we feel like we have to be, we're herded into a castle with like-minded people, like-minded content. I mean, they talk about the confirmation bias. You could prevent, present science, evidence. You could present in the most simplest fact and they'll deny it because their army, they believe is on their side. Is What's created that? What is the responsibility of media? Because I've seen a lot of media deciding that if I pick a side, I still can get advertising dollars. I could still get eyeballs. Yeah. There's not a lot of business in the middle. So it, do you have an answer for that? Or is that just like trying to find more jello against the wall? Uh, society has become more tribal, both politically, socially, racially, in every way you can imagine. We are all retreating to our respective corners. You know, you've heard this expression, can the center hold? Some days you wonder. You know, back in the day, you mentioned I wrote this book about John Turner. There wasn't a huge amount of difference between a blue grit and a red Tory. And most people in the country were blue grits or red Tories. Yes, there were some New Democrats and some much more conservative people on the other side, but the vast swath of people were in the middle. And the differences among their opinions were not all that much. So that if the progressive conservative government in Ontario of the early 1980s got defeated, and David Peterson, a liberal government, came along, you didn't get the feeling the sky was going to cave in because this was such an ideologically dramatic change. We don't live in that world anymore. It's just harder to find that consensus in the middle now. A lot more social cohesion back in the day, a lot less today, and social media, this just in, is not making it any better. It really isn't. So it, can democracy survive? Are we at a point now where democracy might have run its course because- Ooh, Don't say it. Well, the middle ground is where consensus was built. The middle ground is where Canada was created. You know, Even if we had our differences, we would find something we could all agree to. But today we seem to be paralyzed as a country. We're sitting on 38 million people. We share a border and a language of the greatest economy the world's ever seen. We, we have these vast resources and we're paralyzed. We're running in cement, pounding so much debt on the youth. Is there a, a solution within democracy where we can get back to saying what is, we're for the people versus for the party? We have to find a way. We don't have any choice. Look around the world today. I mean, we're one of the most successful countries in the history of the world. We are a beacon for so much of the world. There's a reason why a half a million people want to come here every year. We have to figure out a way to make this work. If Canada can't work with all of the different kinds of people who live here, with the two founding cultures, with all of the complications that this society entails, if we can't make this work, there's no hope for anybody. We're a light unto nations. I really believe that. And we've got to figure out a way to make media healthier, to make politics more civil, so that we can show the rest of the world. You know, one of the things that concerned me about the tribalism of the United States is not that it had an impact on the United States, which it did, but it because it allowed a lot of those other countries in the world that are flirting with democracy but aren't quite there, it allowed them, it gave them cover to be more politically illiberal, to be more authoritarian. Well, the United States is doing it. The greatest democracy in the history of the world is doing all this stuff. Why shouldn't we? We got to be better so that we can set an example to other countries and not give them the excuse to be more illiberal. You've done eight books, many of them political. Three of them at least would be prime ministers that I kind of forgot about. Mm -hmm. I mean, so what was the motivation, for example, with your latest book, John Turner, to bring that back into our vernacular and our conversations and thinking about? Because other than his good looks, I would say to you that most people would say, that was kind of erased as a prime minister. He didn't have the color or the character of others. You've put your finger on a very good question, which is why do you write a book about a guy who was prime minister for all of 79 days? 
And the answer is because that, I mean, imagine this for a second. You're the prime minister of the country, and that might not make your top 10 list of lifelong achievements. <laughs> Interesting, eh? So what else did he do in his life that's worth remembering? Aha. And that's what the book's about, really. I mean, of course, I cover the prime ministerial time and then the uh, elections against Mulroney and all that. But there was so much more to the man than those 79 days as prime minister. A couple of people approached me after he died in September of 2020, and they said, you knew him? You covered his 84 leadership convention when he came back into public life after a decade in the private sector? Our birthdays were two days apart, his and mine, so we used to go out for lunch on our birthdays, we actually became quite friendly later in life after he got out of politics. And they said, you can probably bring something different to a look at John Turner's life. And you can probably convince his family to participate in a book because they never have in the past. And you can probably get access to his private papers in Ottawa, which no one has got access to either. All of that happened. This guy took an 85% pay cut to leave a great job on Bay Street to answer the call of his party and country to go back into public life knowing he was going to get the crap beat out of him, but he did it anyway because he believed in public service. He believed in St. Augustine's, to whom talent is given, there is an obligation to give back. And I think for those reasons and others, he's worthy of a book. So, let, me, let me end with this, whose talent is given, because most people know that you're an acclaimed journalist, say the vast majority know you're a great author, but you also create documentaries. And you've won some incredible prizes, but the one I'm particularly interested in is the return to the Warsaw Ghetto. What brought you to that place in history and why you felt it deserved a new lens on it? In 1992, I was, a, I was invited to participate in a group of about 10 people who went to Poland and the idea was to see whether or not Poland had changed enough in the five decades or so since uh, World War II to warrant uh, the Jewish community of Canada putting together a bigger trip the following year on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. The first moment in recorded history during World War II where Jews who had been sort of corralled into this ghetto uh, in, in the middle of Poland where they fought back. You've heard the expression, they, they walked meekly to the gas chamber and to their own destruction, which I'm sure was not true, but that was the cliche. And this was an example of, of Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto actually fighting back against their Nazi oppressors, trying to fight for their freedom. I, I wasn't part of any official organization, I was just basically invited to be a fly on a wall during the trip. And they discovered that, um, yeah, there had been a lot of changes in Poland over those five decades. And as a result, they decided the following year to put together what they called a mission. And I think about 150 Jewish Canadians went over to Poland and participated in the official 50th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising ceremonies. And so what I decided to do was follow three families. The parents were survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto. The children were going with them on this trip. For some of them, uh, they'd gone back to Poland numerous times and their kids knew the whole story. For others, they didn't know a thing. You know, a lot of people who escaped with their lives in World War II just did not want to burden their children with those stories. I focused on three different families with three different experiences, and what happened was this documentary, Return to the Warsaw Ghetto. 
And it was yeah, truly one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life, watching these families <clears throat> negotiate with their histories, come to terms with all of those ghosts. It was a huge privilege to be able to watch all that and bring that story to Ontario viewers. I've sat with you at a Raptors game. I've seen people come up and say, are you Steve Paik? And you go, no, I, I know I look like him. <laughs> uh, and, and you don't do it because you're bothered. You just do it because you're embarrassed. It's going to be a tough question for you to answer, but I, I want my last question to be answered. How do you want to be remembered? Tony, this is not an ounce of false modesty. I'm not going to be, and I'm fine with that. And the fact of the matter is, you know, very few of us are going to be. There is no legacy. I'm doing what I can today to make a modest contribution to everybody's better understanding of the world we live in today, but, you know, the revolving door keeps going, and I'm fine with it. So, Steve, I always end my podcast and show on the three, my three takeaways. And the first one is you are going to be remembered and might not be celebrated by the public in 34 years, but I think almost everybody you've touched in your life that you've allowed to be somebody, you've allowed to be part of something as opposed to going, this is my thing, is going to remember you. Don't ever underestimate because you are a truly, the kind of leader I think the world needs is because it's not about me. It's Tony, about please, it please, is. please, <laughs> con continue, yeah. continue, yeah. please. Yeah. Now I got his tension. Uh, you know, I think the second thing is this whole concept of diversification, that you never feared trying different things. And I think that's such a wonderful lesson in life, any age and every age. I'm, what I'm doing now in my 60s is I never imagined doing before, but I love doing it. And I think it's something we should celebrate, that the world's uncertain. You don't know if AI is going to take your job, but just keep marching forward, keep doing great things and enjoy it. And the third thing is just the way, and people won't be able to see it, but the tear in your eye when you talked about that documentary and how much it meant to you. And sometimes I think you do almost everything in the world for that, an audience to see, but in this case, I think you did it because it meant so much to you. So I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, joining us at the Toronto Hunt Club and being part of Chatter That Matters. And, and I'm just honored to, uh, to have done this. A great pleasure. Thank you very much. That was joyous. Yeah, thank you. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Joining me now is Tannis Feesby. She's a Senior Vice President of Communications for RBC. Tannis, I'm thrilled that you're coming on Chatter That Matters. Thanks. Glad to be here, Tony. Tannis is an expert in communications. Take your RBC hat off for a minute. Answer the same question I asked Steve. What do we need to do to preserve the truth? to find a way that Canadians can stand in the center, even if we have differences of opinion, united in knowing that we're better off building a better Canada. Yeah, it's so important. It's so important. We need to really take the time to educate ourselves about what disinformation looks like, because there's a lot of it out there. We need to believe that words and coherent arguments can change minds rather than disagreement or even violence. We need to watch out for echo chambers and check sources when we're taking in information. And we need to teach our kids media literacy. What role does organizations like RBC, I'm gonna get you to put your hat on now, what role do they have to play to bring us to the center and actively seek the truth versus maybe just seek headlines that chase one eyeball versus the majority of eyeballs. 
Yeah, we have a huge responsibility as an organization communicating to over 95,000 employees and to our many clients in all the different countries that we operate, as well as having a leading voice in Canada. We have a really big responsibility to always be grounded in truth and fact. Then on top of that, thinking about how do we package that in a way that helps get the message out to the right audiences so that people are near, who, who need that information are getting the information that they need at the time that they need it that can be useful to them. We know that people are listening more than ever to what businesses and CEOs and companies have to say. They, as you said, they, they don't trust government or journalists as much as they used to. So it is a, a tremendous responsibility and we have to use it really judiciously in order to make positive difference in the lives of the people that we're communicating with. Is that changing the type of attributes we're looking for with leaders that instead of maybe just focused on shareholder values, they're focused on shared values that involve all stakeholders? Yeah, that's critically important. We, we have to realize that we have a lot of different audiences. We have to take the time to segment them, think about what each of them needs, why they need it, come back to what are, what are we trying to say to whom? What is our responsibility as, as a leader, uh, particularly in Canada, but as a global leader as well? Uh, how can we make sure that we're making a difference across a whole bunch of different audiences? That includes employees, that includes communities, it includes clients, shareholders, uh, and a whole bunch of other voices that are looking to what RBC has to say. Tannis Beesby, you're so well-respected at RBC, and you, you do so much in terms of helping Canadians understand where they go. And I know you don't want to talk about it because I also know you're very, you your, your humility, but just I just wanted to thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thank you very much, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.